0: Let me invite you if you have your Bibles to turn to Genesis chapter 39 as we continue uh, our study in uh, the first book of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the 30 we're going to be looking at all the 39 chapters, not too long, about 23 verses. Uh, we'll be reading it in, uh, in just a moment. Uh, but there's a theory that's out there in the church that, that goes something like this, and we've alluded to this actually over the last couple of weeks. The theory is this, if I honor God in, in, in the way of if I obey all these commands. Uh, That He's given me, then I should be able to expect the reward, right? Uh, God God will, you know, kind of it's a quid pro quo. If I do, uh, I hold up my end of the bargain, then God will hold up his end of the bargain. And and as long as I do the right stuff, then everything should be good. My kids will turn out fine. Uh, I'll have a wonderful job. Uh, I'll have security all my life. Uh, If I'm a student, my grades uh, will reflect the fact that I'm doing the right thing. I'll get into the right college. Uh, I'll never have health problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is called prosperity theology. Prosperity theology teaches that if you, again, if you do your part, uh, God will do his part. The problem with this is what happens when things go wrong, (laughs) they inevitably will. Nobody has a life without problems, without issues. We live in a sinful and broken world. What happens to your faith? What happens to my faith when things uh, go terribly wrong? The chances are that it could collapse, it could turn to bitterness or resentment, because after all, the way this theory gets me to think is, what kind of God would repay my trust and would repay my faith with struggles and hardships? That doesn't make any sense. Now, this theory is flawed on a lot of different levels and there's no way this morning I'm gonna be able to point out everything that's wrong with this way of thinking. But let me just give you a handful of things that I jotted down throughout the week. First of all, this this theory is flawed because because it presumes that I know as much about the world and much about my circumstances and much about everything around me as God. It literally puts me in a place of what we would call omnipotence, all knowing. The idea that I would actually know enough To uh, be able to make that kind of statement uh, seems to me a bit ludicrous. It also assumes that my moral compass is working perfectly. It means that I'm not flawed in the way I approach life, that I don't make mistakes, that my assessment of my situation, my assessment of God's inadequacies is appropriate. It also ignores my own failures and makes light of my own sin. I don't look at my culpability. I don't look at my responsibility. I simply shift the blame over to God. It also doesn't deal in the reality of how disciples mature in their faith. It doesn't take into account that it really is when you're, when you're in uh, the, the, the grist mill, so to speak, when, when you're in the difficult, hard, rocky places of life, that's where faith tends to grow and mature the deepest. It also supposes that God's love and my struggle are mutually exclusive that if I'm struggling, God can't be loving me. Those are just a handful of things that are wrong with the theology of prosperity. But this morning, I wanna turn our attention to a passage that, that shouts the answer to this question. Genesis 39, we're going to pick up with Joseph's life Uh, He's been sold by his brothers into slavery. The last we saw of Joseph last week, he was in an Ishmaelite caravan headed into Egypt to be sold as a slave, more than likely never to see his family again. 17-year-old kid who's so hated by his brothers that at first they think they want to kill him, then they decide they don't want to be guilty of his blood, so they sell him to slave traders. It's a person who might be having a difficult time saying, how does God's grace and God's mercy and my circumstances add up. Something may be wrong, but Genesis 39 answers the question about how those things actually go together in God's eternal plan. So with that in mind, Genesis 39, 23 verses. If you don't have a Bible, it's right up here on the screen. Hear the word of God. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. "'The blessing of the Lord was on that all he had "'in the house and field. "'So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge "'because of him, "'and he had no concern about anything "'but the food he ate. "'Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, "'and after a time his master's wife "'cast her eyes on Joseph and said, "'Lie with me.' "'But he refused and said to his master's wife, "'Behold, because of me, "'my master has no concern about anything in the house.' And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything for me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house." As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we consider your word this morning, And as we consider it in light of our circumstances, we understand that there are are moments of struggle. There are moments of of intense pain. There are also moments of joy and thankfulness. Father, sometimes we uh, worship you when things are going well, but our worship is is really a worship of the fact that we're not having problems. It really isn't uh, genuinely a worship of you. And Father, we're tempted when things go wrong to take our eyes off of you, but it's at that moment where if we look carefully and if we're still and we, and we pay attention to your word and your spirit, we will see your hand in our lives. Father, we live in a world and in a culture that seeks out uh, pleasure for this life only. So this idea is going to be hard for us from a human perspective to get our minds around. And so it's important, therefore, that, that we don't have man's words to, to fall back on this morning. Father, it's important that this isn't my advice, that this is your eternal word. Father, I struggle with this just as much as anybody in this congregation. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move me aside, that you'd forgive my sin, that you wouldn't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to us this morning, but that you would come and teach us. I'm praying your name. Amen. i want to give you three observations about this text and how it points to uh, to something other than prosperity theology. And I'm going to move right into it because I want to get to the the Lord's table in good time and and enjoy communion together this morning. Uh, The first one is this. You find, I think, within the, the text of this passage in the first three verses, a potential spiritual oxymoron. Look at verses one through three. It says this, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Joseph's in a bad spot. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's 17 years old. We read this on the pages of Scripture, and I don't think it really sinks into our mind the depth of the struggle that Joseph must have been having. Think about what life was like for you when you were 17. If you're a teenager right now, think about what it would be like to be, to be ripped away from your family and everything you've known and everything you've ever known and be taken to a different culture where you don't speak the language, You have no friends, you have no security, you have no one to stand up for you. You're simply at the will and the whim of those who now own you. This was a disastrous situation. But verse two says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. I see here uh, what I call a a spiritual oxymoron. An oxymoron is a combination of contradictory terms, right? You probably are aware of that. So someone says the silence was deafening, using two opposite words to explain something. I heard a politician talk about the fact that uh, the plan that they were going to, uh, to try and get done, they were going to move forward with deliberate haste. And I had to think about that for a few minutes. I'm not sure how you move forward with with deliberate haste. You might say that uh, someone was found missing. These are these are oxymorons. You have two options. Let me give you a couple more. Chicago Cubs baseball in October. That's an oxymoron. You really can't put those two things together. I thought. Did I? Is Bill Tucky here this morning? Are you, uh, Bill? That's that one was just for you, brother. I just. I, I, I'm sorry. I couldn't. I couldn't resist. You say the same thing about maybe uh, blues and, and hockey in, in May and June, which you would be uh, happy to, to counter. Your Blackhawks are doing better than my blues. Uh, Tom Ricks and Handyman, those would be, uh, that would be an oxymoron. You, you get the idea here. Well, Joseph, how do you put together slavery and God's blessing? How can those two things possibly go together? It seems that if God wanted to go to the trouble to bless Joseph, he would have kept him with his family. He would have kept him in a safe place. He would have kept him in a, in a place where, yeah, he wasn't getting along with his brothers, but he was the favorite child of, a, of his father. I mean, if you're gonna not get along with your siblings, the best way to, to do that is in the context where your parents stick up for you every time. So there seems to be some, some, some uh, problem here with the idea that God is, is blessing Joseph and that Joseph is in slavery. But look at how the, the blessing is formed. Verse two says, the Lord was with... Joseph. He repeats it again in chapter three. The Lord was uh, in verse three. The Lord was with him. The presence of God is the blessing, not a change of circumstances, not not making everything smooth and easy, but rather God's presence. The Lord was with Joseph in his pain. The Lord was with Joseph in his loneliness. The, the Lord was with Joseph in his fear. The Lord was with Joseph in his servitude. I don't want to make light of Joseph's scenario. It would be easier to say, well, he didn't have it that bad. I mean, after all, he was bought by one of the captains, and you know, life kind of was a little bit easier for him than it would have been for other slaves. Again, I can't imagine what it would be like at 17 to be ripped away from your home and think you're never going to see your family again. Joseph's pain was very real, and I, and I don't want to uh, minimize that. I actually, I'm going to just take a second and read from C.S. Lewis's book called The Problem with Pain, and he talks about uh, what a struggle it can be to be enmeshed in, uh, in, in this kind of crisis. He says, when I think of pain, of anxiety that gnaws like fire, and loneliness that spreads out like a desert, and the heartbreaking routine of monotonous misery, "...or again of dull aches that blacken our whole landscape, "...or sudden nauseating pains that knock a man's heart out at one blow, "...of pains that seem already intolerable and then are suddenly increased, "...of infuriating, scorpion, stinging pains that startle into maniacal movement "...a man who has seemed half dead with his previous tortures, "...it consumes my spirit." if I knew any way to escape, I would crawl through sewers to find it. Friends, I think we have to be very, very careful in trivializing Joseph's pain. Joseph was in a bad spot. His pain was real. I think that C.S. Lewis, the brilliant writer, that he has captured some of the emotion that Joseph was feeling, and yet he was not separated from the love of God. And therein is the first truth in this passage. Being in a tough spot, being in a place of of emotional desolation even, and being separated from the love of God are two very different things. And one does not equate the other. In fact, my, my pain does not equal an absence of God's love. It actually intensifies my longing for and understanding it. I believe to assume that is a, is, a, is a natural reaction. I believe it's understandable that, that folks feel that at times. God, where are you? Are you there? Are you listening to me? Are you, are you with me in my pain? How did I get here? But that reasoning ultimately is fallacy. God does not abandon us in our pain. He is right there. God was with Joseph in Egypt there really is not a spiritual oxymoron here. My second observation is this is what happens when you honor God, uh, but you still get the shaft. I was trying to find a nicer way to say that. <laughs> I was trying to find some really cool you know theological way to put that i just couldn 't come up with a different word so uh, th- that 's where I ended but But I want to take these individual I want to talk about Joseph honoring God for just a moment. Look at verses uh, seven. Through ten Now, uh, Joseph's handsome, uh, and, and uh, the master's wife casts her eyes on Joseph and says, lie with me. She tries to seduce him. That's what's going on. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept anything bad for me except yourself, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? She spoke to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her and lie beside her or be with her. I wanna suggest you here that, that Joseph is growing. Joseph is maturing. When we first met Joseph, he was a little uh, young, young guy, 17 years old, who was very proud, very arrogant, very immature in the way he, he dealt with his siblings. Uh, he really uh, was kind of a cocky young man that you, you might not wanna spend a whole lot of time around. He may have, may have rubbed you the wrong way. But I think he's had time to reflect. He's now in a a tough spot, but he's beginning to see the hand of God in his life. And some of his spiritual immaturity uh, seems to be leaving him. Uh, His appreciation probably for his family and for his Lord are, are growing. We see that taking place in his life. And therefore, he honors his master when it would have been much easier just to give in to this temptation. He actually says look your husband's put me in charge of everything when he comes in the house He's not even greater than me. He's he's given me that much authority. How could I possibly offend him? by doing this Now it would have been easier for joseph just to say you know what nobody will know You know, i'm a young guy. I'm a long way from home A little physical and emotional comfort might not be a bad thing And it would have been just as easy after all mrs. Potiphar is a powerful woman she could make his life very easy or she could make it miserable. And he refuses her advances at his own risk. But he has a respect for his for his owner. He has a respect for his, for his boss that won't allow him to make this kind of decision. Robert E. Lee was once quoted as saying, I think it is better to do right, even if we suffer in so doing, than to incur the reproach of our conscience and posterity. I think Joseph would say amen to that. I I can't do what's wrong. I'm going to do what's right, even if it harms me. But notice that beyond uh, his motivation of wanting to honor his boss who put him in charge of everything, he also has a deeper motivation in the second part of verse nine. He he desires to honor God and his behavior. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not sin against my boss, but sin against God. Joseph understands that if he were to give in to this temptation, if he was going to go along with Mrs. Potiphar, the first person who would be the most greatly offended by that action would not be his boss, offended though he would be, but God himself. And Joseph's deeper understanding of his circumstances saw that in light of God's promises, in light of God's grace, he could not give in to this temptation, and he honors God in his reaction. Do, do we have that approach in our own lives? We face struggles. We we face temptations. There's no question about it. Sexual temptation, this passage, is is still in our lives today, along with numerous other temptations in our life that, that challenge the lordship of christ and say i know god set it up this way but boy if you go this way it'll be more fun or it'll be easier it'll be it'll be smoother you face those temptations i face those temptations every day but do we face them understanding that we have the assurance of god's love and god's presence in our life do we understand the temptations actually offer us a growth opportunity that when Joseph turned her down day after day after day, he was becoming more and more the man God called him to be. Joseph was honoring God. So you would think the next verse says, would say that, and Joseph lived happily ever after. He became the best slave in all of Egypt and in his life uh, went well from there. You would think if, if prosperity theology was true, then everything would go his way because he's done his part, right? God said, thou shalt you know, not commit adultery. Joseph, you, know, you, you shouldn't sleep with another man's wife. And Joseph has, he's, he's made it. He's done a great job. Day after day after day, he has withstood this temptation. You would think the guy would say, great, Joseph, way to go. Now let me pat you on the back. Let me just make everything wonderful to you. We'll look ahead to verse 20 after his, uh, his seducer lies about what happens first to the men in the household and then to her own husband. Verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. That's not right. (laughs) There's something wrong with that. Joseph has done everything appropriately. He's blameless in all of this. And he's the one that ends up getting the shaft. There's something wrong with this picture. Uh, when I was in seminary, Brian Chappell told a story about, he's now the president of Covenant Seminary, he was one of my uh, homiletics professors at Covenant, he told us a story one day about the first church in which he pastored in a small town in Illinois, and almost everybody in that town worked for a company that owned a printing business in the town, they, they had a, several hundred people involved, it was a very large printing business and it did all kinds of different uh, magazines and journals and all that sort of thing. And while Brian was there, one of the things that, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the, the printing company took several contracts with adult magazines. And, uh, and Brian began to preach against that and began to say, how can, how can we as Christians go to that workplace and, and help produce that? And people would say, well, you know what, this, the, the, the business has made the, the contractual decision. We're not supporting what we're putting out, but we'll lose our livelihood if we, if we don't continue to do this work. And Brian had to make a choice. He said, "I had to decide, and I had elders in my church who were who were men on that on the staff of that company. I had people of influence in my congregation who were in that company. I had to decide: Am I going to follow God in this, or am I going to simply try to go along and get along?" And Brian would preach against that decision, and lots of people left his church. That's not right. That's not fair. In Tom Ricks's book, if he stood up and did the right thing, how could it appear that God would abandon him? In that particular moment, but that's not where the story ends Does joseph become bitter does joseph lose faith they say wait a minute God I did everything I, I was supposed to and now look what's happened to me. No look at verse 21 and a reassurance And unsettling circumstances, but the lord Was with joseph now we've we've read that two times already in this passage, but now moses compounds it; he makes it even greater The lord was with joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You know, slavery is bad, but Joseph was growing as a person. He was growing in his faith, but prison is quite another matter altogether, to be put in prison for doing right. But God's love was not inhibited by Joseph's struggle. In fact, God's love isn't inhibited by our struggles either. Suffering actually makes the opportunity for us to trust God even more because God does not leave. God does not abandon us when we're in the difficult places. In fact, it's in the prisons of our lives where God shows his steadfast love and his mercy to his people. We like to tell life stories at Green Tree Community Church. We have some coming up this spring. I'm working on one right now. Uh, and we love to hear the stories of how God works in people's lives. But I, I got to tell you a theme that I've heard over and over again over the years. You hear somebody who's gone through a very difficult circumstance, whether it's a marriage situation or, or a health situation, and, and, and almost every person says in some way this, this idea. You know, I wouldn't choose to have had that happen in my life. If I, could, if I could have avoided it, I certainly would have. But now that I look back, I wouldn't trade it because it's there that I saw God's compassion. It's there that I saw that that God would be merciful to me. It's there where my strength abated and his strength grew greater and greater and greater. It's there where I grew the most, in the refiner's fire, so to speak. And God offers this reassurance to Joseph while he's in prison. He continues to find favor in the light of those who are over him. He continues to see God's hand in his life. And I think if you could ask Joseph at the end of chapter 50, uh, after everything is all said and done, Joseph, what about that time in prison? I think he would probably say to you, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Because it was there that I saw the faithfulness of God. In that moment, did Joseph know God's care? Did Joseph see very clearly what was going on? I would say probably yes and no. I would say that there were probably moments of great clarity where Joseph, you know, saw that that he was actually doing okay in prison and 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 was able to say, you know, God's with me. But I think there were probably still moments of doubt. I think there were probably still moments of great fear. I think he said, you know, I really thought maybe after I was doing well at Potiphar's house, I might get to be re- reunited with my family. But now that I'm in prison, there's probably no way I'm going to see my dad, my family again. I think it probably ebbed and flowed because I think that's how our lives our spiritual journeys go. I think that's actually the pathway of discipleship. It's learning to trust God's character. It's learning to trust God's love and not seek my security and not seek my value in my circumstances. And in fact, the exact opposite. Because if I I seek my security in my circumstances, then that becomes idolatry in my life. I say, "I, I love my circumstances more than I love my God. And Joseph's put to the test, and my guess is that it probably went back and forth, but I, I'm sure that over time he began to see very clearly God's hand in his life. I want to bring us back to Lewis for just a second. I want to read uh, something that he says later uh, in this book about this, uh, about this idea of suffering and, and why God allows it in our lives and what one of the byproducts may be. He says, the Christian doctrine of suffering explains, I believe, a very curious fact about the world we live in. The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has scattered broadcast. In other words, he's, he's sprinkled it around. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. And it's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and oppose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath or a football match have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I believe that the hard places are very real. I know some of the hard places you guys are living in this morning because you honor me by uh, trusting me with that information and asking for me to pray for you and encourage you. I know that the struggles that we face are not fictitious, but I believe that we can learn to trust there. I believe we can learn to rejoice in the Lord Jesus, even in our pain. I believe that's why God allows it there in the first place, in order for us to understand that that seeking the pleasure of the world as our ultimate security is idolatry. But trusting in Him, because He's the one who never leaves. He's the one who never forsakes us. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me for just a minute as we close the sermon, and we're going to pray another prayer together. Uh, we we prayed one at the earlier in the service uh, together. Uh, a prayer that Anselm wrote. Anselm, the one we prayed earlier was from Anselm. Uh, this prayer is actually uh, written by Ignatius, uh, who is a 16th century monk. He actually formed the Jesuits. You see the Jesuit orders around St. Louis, uh, which simply means Society of Jesus. Uh, and and um, um, he was a bit of a, Ignatius was a bit of a reformer within the Catholic church. But he's written this prayer that speaks directly to this question. I thought it would be great for us to, uh, to close the sermon in prayer, in this prayer. Let's pray together out loud. O Christ Jesus, when all is darkness and when we feel our weakness and helplessness, give us the sense of your presence, your love, and your strength. Help us to have perfect trust in your protecting love and strengthening power so that nothing may frighten or worry us. For living close to you, we shall see your hand your purpose, your will through all things. Amen.